0: Hey, everybody, I'm here today with Leanne Power. She is the Director of Product Development at G2 Web Services. How are you doing, Leanne?
1: I'm doing great. How are
0: you? Doing excellent. Well, thanks for taking time to join us today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, so we always start these interviews off the same way. We like to kind of get your story a little bit. Um, you know, how did you get into this industry? What's your background? So maybe you can kind of connect the dots for us and, and tell us how you ended up there at uh, G2.
1: Oh sure, absolutely. And I I may actually date myself a little bit. Like
2: That's okay. About, if you can't, if you can't date yourself, I who can you date?
1: <laughs> okay. Exactly. Um well, anyway, I started my career um, many, many years ago at Seattle First National Bank, which has since now merged with Bank of America. My very first job in the payments industry was a chargeback clerk. So, answer the phone. Merchants would yell at me because of a chargeback. I'd try to help them. So I learned really early on what damage things like chargebacks can do Mm -hmm. to really good legitimate merchants. Um, From there when Bank of America merged with C First Bank, I ended up in the product group. Um, Also, a little prior to that, I did some customer service phone calls and things like that. When I was at BAMS worked on traditional dial-up terminal implementation. We had a networked application that worked well for the T and E industry. And then we also developed a really early-on proprietary authorization system. And then from there I went to a startup ISO and worked with their engineering teams and really developed everything end to end from an authorization and settlement system to a payment gateway international processing, shopping carts, client-facing APIs, all that kind of stuff. So the bulk of my career has really been in the acquiring industry, and I've worked both for an acquirer and an ISO. And then after that company sold, I took a little break and had an opportunity at G2, which is still in the payments industry, but it gave me an opportunity to kind of do something completely different. Mm -hmm. And I've been at G2 since 2014.
0: Wow. Awesome. So... Uh, so G2 Web Services. I know some of our listeners are going to be familiar, some are not. Um, can you give us a little bit more of context there? I mean, what, what exactly do you guys do? Uh, what, you know, what types of companies do you serve? Give us a little bit of a context there.
1: Sure. So our primary customers are acquirers and ISOs. Um, we do a little bit of work with commercial banks, and we also do some work occasionally with Homeland Security, and Interpol, especially for detecting human trafficking and uh, child uh, trafficking. Wow, but wow that's different. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, a bit, it's a little bit different. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that stuff's out there. Yeah, it really is. But our is. core business is really around Visa and MasterCard compliance requirements in the e-commerce space. Visa and MasterCard don't want their brand associated with illegal drug sales, um, bad adult content, Um, those types of things on the internet. And they offer acquirers an ISO mitigation if they proactively monitor and look for that bad content on their website. So that's really where the company was kind of founded. Since then, we've really grown into a company because of our database of e-commerce websites into a company that can offer boarding products. So upfront, have we ever seen this bad guy before? Uh, we also look at our product suite to really kind of help manage both positive and negative risk. And by that, I mean an ISO may want to take on a high-risk vertical that's okay with Visa and MasterCard, but they may want to keep a closer eye on it, um, that type sure. of thing. Um, we also provide reputation services, so a lot of the ISOs and acquirers gather this information manually, negative news, litigation, Um, Google reviews, and Mm -hmm. we have a way to consolidate and pull that all together. So um, we really do a a lot, but I would say it's really compliance and then managing positive and negative risk. And I think one of the things that sets G2 apart is, A, we've been doing this longer than anyone else, but we also really try to combine both technology as well as the human component To give a more holistic product. Technology alone can't do it, and people alone can't do it.
0: And I think that's
1: one thing that's that's really important, um, really important at G2. So that's kind of just a high level overview of of what we're about. If I
0: was to break that down and, and really put it on the bottom shelf, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, it sounds like a big part of what you do is your job is basically to use automation and you know humans as well kind of together to look online and basically figure out what a business is really doing, right? So like I've signed somebody up and it's you know when I when I submit the application as an agent it might say this is an online retailer, but you guys are gonna go out and find those flags that wait a minute, they are an online retailer, but what they're selling is something they're not supposed to be selling or or their you know services that Visa and MasterCard are not compliant. They don't want to be associated with. So your job basically is once once a merchant comes into your system, you're trying to find out and monitor like what that merchant actually does so that the ISO or the acquirer can make sure they're they're not they don't have business they don't want to have. Is that is that a pretty good And, and s- also
2: I would I would I would add to that perhaps and, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but also just to make sure that their business is in good standing, right? I mean I could see like, you know, going in and saying, hey, I'm business ABC, I just started this business, but uh, G2's research might show that, yeah, but she was running porn sites last week. Last week. Right. <laughs> you know, is, is that correct, Leanne? Am I, am I correct yeah, on that?
1: Y- yes. You guys, you guys are right on the money, and there's a lot of different things going on. It could just be blatant bad content on the Internet that's pretty easy for us to find. Sure it could be a merchant setting up uh, that new business that looks perfectly fine and turns out it's a front site and they've got another website and they're running the transactions through this front site. Uh Um, And it could also be, we also have a lot of um, issues where, uh, especially on the ISO side where you've got 1099 folks boarding merchants and they may board it under one MCC code and because they know they can get it boarded quicker, and it may belong, it may actually be a completely different business type. It may or sure. may not be sure. illegal goods. But trying to get the MCC correct because that impacts a lot of times impacts interchange. So there's just a wide variety of things that we look for. But your take on it that we're generally looking for negative or bad things on e-commerce sites is right on the money.
0: Sure, got it. Okay. Um, so let's do this. Let's try to break this down a little bit. Um, you know, what are the kind of some of the issues? So if you look at like maybe the last twelve to twenty four months, uh, you know, you're working with ISOs. What are some of the issues, trends, uh, things that you've noticed through? You know, obviously you guys are collecting a lot of data and analyzing it. What are some trends you've mm-hmm. noticed uh, in those areas that you feel like ISOs especially should be like aware of?
1: Yeah, probably the the biggest one that we've noticed is I think kind of the the bad guys, so to speak, have really figured out that the ISOs and acquirers have the ability, either themselves or through a partner, to effectively monitor websites and catch the bad things that they're selling. So what we've really seen over the last 12 to 18 months is a huge migration into transaction laundering. Mm. They're either taking a legitimate merchant and running the transactions through that merchant and then that merchant paying them and obviously charging them a fee to do that, or these guys are setting up a front site, like, I don't know, I'm selling rum cakes or something like that, but really what they're doing is they've got an illegal drug site where they're selling marijuana and CBD and they're processing the transactions. And even on the website, they'll say, Oh, your transaction's going to say you purchased that, you know, Molly's rum cakes, when in fact they're buying something illegal. So, and that's a little bit tougher to detect. We have a,
2: a yeah, lot of sure. things
1: going on to, to detect that. That's probably the biggest one. Hmm. The other one we're seeing is if they're not running transactions through. Um, a front side or laundering transactions is they're starting to get smarter and smarter about how they construct their websites. Mm-hmm. So, for example, JavaScript is very common, but the web crawlers, there's a lot of overhead. And so the web crawlers need to be able to handle that. Or even something as simple as taking a word like CBD. And instead of putting CBD on the website, they'll put C period B, period D period oh, yeah. on the website to try to try to fool the crawlers. So sure. we're always having to find these things, detect these things, um, kind of keep up on these things. And then I think the third one is just the explosion of marketplaces um, in in the kind of the e-commerce space, um, whether it's a, a square type model where, Um, There's a single merchant number and they're acting as a PSP or they all have separate merchant IDs and marketplaces are a really easy way for, again, these bad merchants to sell their goods and services just because a marketplace is so expansive mm-hmm. that trying to kind of catch it is, is tough because marketplaces are all constructed differently and you really have to handle each one of those marketplaces uniquely so mm-hmm. I, I would say those from from our space those are probably the biggest things that, that we've seen over the last year mm-hmm. or so
0: what about um, you know the aggregation model like you mentioned square <clears throat> and then of course I know a big thing in our industry lately has been the payfax Um you know, mm-hmm. where, where you may have an organization that really isn't positioned well to handle the stuff you're talking about, risk or whatever, um, has that had an impact on your business where you're getting more uh, organizations maybe that are on the smaller side, but they're actually doing a pay fact or something where they've decided to take on some of their own risk? You know, is that, is the aggregation model or the pay fact model, is that in any way like impacting your business?
1: It really is simply because, again, it's kind of not one size fits all. Right. And we really the acquirers and the ISOs really have to be able to manage those payment facilitators, um, PSPs, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, And a lot of folks that are out managing marketplaces really will sometimes say, oh, it's technology, it's a website, let's just crawl it all. But Mm -hmm. a lot of the marketplaces don't allow for that. So um, it's, it's really important that regardless of whether or not you have an aggregated model, individual merchant IDs, that um, you really pay attention to everything on the on the internet. I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, it does. But.
0: It does. And I I guess what I'm trying to get at is just trying to point out kind of the need for what you guys do, right? Because uh, again, yeah. I think I think more and more people are are going. Okay, you know, we've got you know we have three thousand mids. Okay, let's become a payfac. Well. Okay, but you got to be careful, you know, because, of course, yeah, you can do a model where you still leave the risk with the acquirer, but, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're a payfac and you're going to take on risk and everything, you know, there's a lot involved and there are a lot of merchants who are – it's like – it's funny, like, I feel like our industry works so hard to get new merchant accounts that – it's almost like the agents in the smaller companies are almost amazed, like somebody comes and they want to process with you. Well, maybe there's a reason behind that, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And they're like, yay, yeah, yeah. I just got a sale. Well, <laughs> don't get excited yet. If you're managing the risk, you better have something like using G2 or something like that, mm-hmm. right, to, to help manage that risk, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that, at least from kind of my my payment services background, being an ISO, is... You know, when you're sponsored by an acquirer, if you take your own risk on, you have better margins. Right. Which is great, but you're assuming that additional risk. Sure, right. But I would argue that an ISO should be positioned to um, go ahead and take on that risk if they subscribe to a company like G2 that can try to mitigate or minimize the risk that they that they might assume. We've also seen ISOs also take on higher risk portfolios and actually take the G2 charges and make that a component of what they pass on or charge to the merchant of course. as an additional fee. Sure. So. So I, I think there's there's some advantages to maybe even some ISO switching from not assuming the risk to assuming the risk,
0: mm,
1: increasing their margins by using somebody like G2 to mitigate that risk.
0: Yeah, because that's a huge part of it. I mean, anybody that's got an ISO knows that, well, they should know. I mean, if you've tried to negotiate with the acquirer and everything to, you know, get better margins or, or better uh, residual splits, whatever you want to call it, um, you mm-hmm. know, a big part of that is who's handling the risk, right? So. That's really yeah. interesting. Um, now, let, let's, uh, I want to take a two minute detour into the weeds here for just a second. So, like, because I'm also a computer programmer and, and so I'm on the technical side of things. So, help me understand a little mm-hmm. bit. So, like, let's say I've got an ISO. I've got you know whatever I've got five thousand mids or something reasonable sized uh, company and I'm trying to grow it to thirty thousand. So um, I've got access to some data. How would I actually work with G2? Is it are you guys somehow like you have APIs or something that becomes part of the onboarding process or like give me some some like a case study type example of like how would I actually work with you guys?
1: if you sign if you signed up and you're ready to hit the ground running type yeah. thing.
0: Yeah, like okay, we want to use okay. G two web services to mitigate mm-hmm. our risk and manage that. What what do we what what would you guys actually do? Like what processes do you become involved in?
1: So what what we really start out with is we have a client services team that when we have a new ISO or acquire come on board, first thing they do is get on the phone, talk through all of the I guess standard things that we look for to comply with Visa and MasterCard. Sure. But then we also customize what we look for based on that individual client. So let's say, for example, we know for online furniture sales are higher risk. Right. Some ISOs may want us to look for that. Some ISOs may not want us to look for that. So we really go through sort of a laundry list and customize what they may want us to look for that's outside of the Visa and MasterCard requirements. Submitting the, the URLs to us for monitoring, and we offer customized fields. We also offer things like uh, merchant ID, DBA, billing descriptor. We retain that mm. data and present that back because that can tie your that can tie. Um, the the audit that we're doing back to their system. Merchant ID tends to be kind of the biggest driver, but they can submit that data through a CSV file if they're smaller and they just want to attach a CSV file within our portal and upload those records they can. And we also have an API that would allow our clients to automate that as far as um, sending in ads and removes and that type of thing. Um, Typically, we do monthly monitoring, uh, we also have boarding products, so they can go online and submit just a, a single request on demand for our boarding products. But normally we monitor once a month, and today most of our clients access the results within the portal. Mm-hmm. And they, when, they, when they access those through the portal, they also action, this one looks okay, I'm going to terminate this. We then provide reporting to specifically MasterCard. Visa doesn't require any reporting, but we, re- we send the reporting to MasterCard on behalf of our acquirers and our, our ISOs. Um, there's customized filtering, reporting, things like that they can do. And if they, if, they, you know, if they sign up for just regular monitoring, they can do that, monitoring, boarding, transaction laundering. But once set up, our client services team will actually go through and give them a, a thorough training of, of how to use our products and services. Uh, we're also in the process of completely revamping our portal. And once that's finished, we will also have the ability for our ISOs and acquirers to extract that data back out via API. Today, that's typically done just through a CSV file or um, or hmm. working through our portal. But we, we, we do do a lot of hand-holding and customization with our clients.
0: Wow. Yeah, I like it. That sounds uh, actually really interesting. Sounds very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you the last question yeah. here. Um, so for uh, ISOs, I know there's probably a lot of them listening now that are like, okay, that's interesting. They want to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, where would you send them? Where should they go to learn more about the ISO program and potentially reach out to get uh, consultation?
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, well, we like every other company. We have a website, um, sure. and for fun, we often even scan our own website to see. We can <laughs> I, bet, I bet. I bet. I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's that's always that's always kind of uh, kind of interesting. But G2 llccom is our website. Okay. There's a lot of great information out there mm-hmm. on our products and services. Um, and obviously they can go to the contact us page, either call us on the phone, fill out a form. And one of our sales representatives, uh, can get back to them. Um, I'm not sure if the ISOs are just within the United States market, but we are Mostly, a global yeah. company. Sure. So, and I, and I think again, it's really key to not just focus on the Visa and MasterCard compliance. While that's a big component, I think a especially even more than the acquiring side, on the ISO side, we can help them manage both positive and negative risk because they're primarily looking at transaction trends, right? Chargebacks, returns, average ticket volume. This is a whole other side of managing risk. And if you put the two together, it can really mitigate losses and it can Hmm. allow them to maybe carry some higher risk type merchants that nobody else wants.
2: Let me let me just ask if I, I know just sure. quickly. I was wondering, how is a service like this priced? Is it uh, by the, you know, by the client, by the, you know, a monthly subscription? Can you give give us a sense for for how that how that's handled?
1: Yeah. You know, the pricing pricing is interesting because a lot of it really depends. um, Are they going to have one product or three products with us? What type of volume are they going to going to have? So just like we customize what we look for, we really try to customize our pricing to fit that particular ISO, um, that particular type of business. Um, In general, it's it's Transactional or it's uh, tiered pricing. So X to Y transactions, you pay this, and you know as your volume gets up, you pay pay this and pay this. So it's really on a case by case basis. But I think that the billing's broken down to a point where you can get at a transactional level. So Uh the ISO wants to bundle that and include that.
2: Right, that's what I was thinking. Like
1: a monthly as a monthly fee, it's very easy for them to do that.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, yep. Leanne, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate that. It was a lot of great information and uh, just really appreciate what you guys are doing. I uh, hope you get some good contact from the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks
1: so much. Hey, Have thanks. a great day. You
0: too. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street, in our evolving sphere, you know,
2: James, uh, things have been busy on the ma- on the merger front lately. Oh my, I sure have. Yeah, Fidelity Information Services (FIS, for short) has an- announced in March that it's merging with WorldPay to cement the latter's position as the leading merchant acquirer in the U.S. The combination is valued at 43 billion dollars in stock and cash to WorldPay shareholders. That's a pretty crazy number, Patty. Isn't that a cr- And it's about that works out to about. 14% premium over the company stock price on the day before the announcement was made. Wow. That's a nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, good job. If you, if you bought that stock right before, good job. To uh, g- congratulations. F- congratulations to one and all. But If you, uh, if you had stock options on it, uh, then you're going to take me to Hawaii with
2: you, right? <laughs> Uh-huh, and, and me too, I hope. <laughs> well, you know, news of the FIS World Pay Combination comes on the heels of Fiserv's acquisition of leading acquirer First Data Corporation. Which was announced in January and valued at 22 billion, which at the time was considered a huge, oh my yeah. a huge premium. It also comes less than two years after Cincinnati-based Vantiv paid 10.6 billion for WorldPay Group and, rebra- and rebranded the combined entity as WorldPay Inc. Uh, prior to the merger, Vantiv had been the fourth-largest acquirer in the U.S., and WorldPay was number 11. Um, but following the, com- the merger, WorldPay shot up to assume the top perch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's according to StrawHacker, which keeps tabs on these kind of things. Right. You know, WorldPay has a storied history. It was originally a unit of Royal Bank of Scotland, but the bank was forced to sell the unit back in 2009 as part of a UK government bailout of RBS.
0: Hmm.
2: Now, pending approvals by shareholders and regulators, the newly combined company will retain the FIS moniker and headquarters in in, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Um, Raymond Pucci, who is Director of Merchant Services at Mercator Advisory Group, described the merger this way. Quote, the deal marks one of the biggest transactions in the fast consolidating payment sector that is under pressure to cut costs. Now that's an understatement. I should say so. (laughs) Uh, Gary Norcross, Chairman and President uh, and CEO of FIS, put it this way quote, as a combined organization, we will, br- we will bring the most modern solutions targeted at the highest growth markets. Hmm. Uh, Char- and Charles Ducker, uh, who had been with WorldPay, uh, excuse me, Vantiv, before he w- was heading up WorldPay, and right. before that it was Fifth Third, because Fifth Third was what owned Sorry to keep track. I know, it really, you need a scorecard, right? <laughs> but uh, but Drucker said, quote, from new scale and capabilities uh Know, said the combined companies will benefit from new scale and capabilities that will truly dif- differentiate us globally. Now, like FISERV, FIS is a leading provider of back-end processing services to banks and credit unions. But unlike FISERV, which acquired First Data, the fourth largest acquired in the U.S., in order to enter merchant acquiring, FIS already had an established presence in the market and it has been bulking up its offerings to include business tools for retailers like analytics and inventory management. FIS also has established merchant marketing and loyalty programs as well as merchant gateway services to enable e-commerce transactions globally. Because, of course, WorldPay is more of a global. Well, right. Right. You'd hope with that name. With a name like that, right? Uh, You know, Pucci suggested other mergers and acquisitions involving merchant acquirers could be in the offing. Uh, quote. He said. He said, quote. M and A departments will be working overtime to tee up new possibilities.
0: Yeah, you know what's funny to me? I just love how all the uh, they have all these generic uh, statements. You know, our our combination is going to improve right. competitive. Like, come on, like right. what it is is they're 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 getting together to have cost synergies. Exactly. This is it's it's about. It's all about scale. Right. The more scale, the lower the cost. the More volume, the better. You know, the deals you get. And so, I mean, really. For the agents and ISOs out there that are like, oh, all these mergers, you know, they what new technology are they going to come out with? They're going to come out with less technology because right. now they're going to combine 14 disparate developer groups that know don't know each other right into it's, one it, or two. Right. There's a reason why like big mega companies are not great at being innovative. It's because they're always focused on increasing scale to cut costs. Right. Which is right. fine. I mean, I'm not I'm not knocking it. It's a great. If I was a shareholder, I'd be very very of pleased, course. And right? if I was the CEO of you know WorldPay or First Data, I would be looking for MA stuff because I want to make more money. Exactly. And that's the easiest way to do it is to leverage the transaction. But I think to position it as this is going to make us more competitive and we're going to serve merchants better, uh, you know, now we're going to be share. Please explain to me how. <laughs> right, we're going to be serving <laughs> our shareholders better. Exactly, you know? which is fine. Again, I'm a and capitalist. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, you know, I don't like it when they present it as something that maybe it's not. <laughs> well, it, it, to me, they're sort of like
2: you know textbook business school. Uh, jargon, right. right? Exactly. Right. Exactly.
0: We're going to be more competitive and position ourselves to We're gonna acquire be. clients in a competitive manner that will, you know, it's like yeah, oh, yeah, ugh. yeah, yada yada <laughs> yada. Right. Anyway, go ahead. Well, Sorry. no, Just no had, you know, had to throw that out there. No, that's okay. good.
2: It's good because it kind of goes to a point that I was, I was thinking of, you know, and I reached out to a friend of mine, Adam Atlas, who's a, he's a respected industry attorney. I asked him what he thought about this. You know, he he works with a lot of ISOs and MLSs and, you know, when they're – especially when they're negotiating agreements. Right. He's the guy that reads all the fine print. And, you know, he said that the consolidation trend – Coupled with a retreat for, uh, from ISO agreements by some leading acquirers, in his mind, these fewer choices for ISOs. Right, and that, right, you know, that I think is is, is, is really important to look at when you yeah, look at is. this. You know, it is absolutely. And he, you know, he said, "quote Years ago, ISOs could shop for a deal with any one of a handful of processors to did direct deals. You know, First Data, WorldPay, Elevon, Bantive, thesis Chase Chase Payment Tech." Global Mm -hmm. payments, right, right, yep. Um, Well, you know, as he as he noticed, as as as, uh, you know, as he added, you know, but he added that uh, you know, the indications are that Chase Payment Tech and Global are retreating from these direct ISO agreements, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, And then you have WorldPay and Vantiv are now just WorldPay, right? Right. So he said, you know, Patty, um, I'm left wondering how ISOs will be able to solicit
0: competing bids for the sales work going forward.
2: Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I think that pretty much sums up
0: my take on this. It, uh, well, and I think, too, it's it's almost uh, it's almost to the point where it doesn't even matter as much that anymore because there's just no meat left on the bone. Right. And that's why these companies are backing away from it because, you know, an ISO comes to, you know, the, an ISO is currently with t and they come to WorldPay, and they say, hey, look, I've got a $0.03 cost and 100% split. What can you do for me? Right. I don't know. What do you want to do for them? It's, you know, there's, so there's right. really not a lot of profit left in the ISO world for these big companies. Right. So I think that's one of the big reasons that they're, you know, and again, there's always those technology plays and other ways to leverage that merchant relationship. Sure. But I think it is tough for them to find, you know, profitable avenues still with the ISO world. And so, yeah, I agree. I think it is going to be tougher for small to medium ISOs to find the right direct relationship. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff, Patty. Thanks. Thank you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by instantquotetool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit InstantQuoteTool.com today or email support at to learn more. Hey, everybody. My name is James Shepard, and this is Questions from the Field. So, you know, Patty, I get so many questions from ISOs and agents on value selling. Oh, I bet. Right? It's like everybody's focused on price, price, price. Right. Margins are coming down. How do we sell value? How do we sell POS systems? How do we sell gateway stuff? Mm -hmm. How do we sell mobile payments? How do we, you know, uh,
2: uh, what do you call Loyalty.
0: Yeah, loyalty programs, right? Right. All this other stuff. And so um, it's been something that's really been on my mind. And just recently, I spent about – eight hours preparing a really detailed course on on uh, value selling for a client. Excellent. So I thought what I'll do is I'm going to do like a little three-part mini-series here, and we'll just take like 10 minutes on each of the next three podcasts. Okay. Um, so let's jump in real quick and kind of do an introduction to value selling. So the first thing that we need to understand, so if you want to sell on value, not just on price – The first thing that we have to talk about is selling on price. Mm -hmm. Why do people sell on price? Why do agents always do this? And there's a couple reasons for it. So the first thing you have to understand is that price is value, right? I mean, selling on price is selling on value. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's selling on one specific type of value. Right. So the reason so many agents do it is because it's predictable. When you call the merchant, you are assuming that the, that what they see as valuable is saving money. Mm-hmm. Now, the good news is many merchants do find value in that. Sure. It's quantifiable. You know, it's like right. I'm going to save them $600 a year, and I know that they're going to find $600 a year in value in that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The problem, as any good sales agent in this industry will tell you, is you know how many of you listening right now have had a merchant where you're saving them more than $1,000 a year and they did not switch? Yeah. And you're like, what is wrong with you? Right. I'm saving you all this money. Right. Well, there's nothing really wrong with them. It's just that you're not trying to find out what they value. You're just assuming, assuming what
2: they value. Assuming they value the price. Right. I'm and sure. they may not. Right. Right. Six, so, 600 a 1000 might be okay, but- right.
0: Uh, better loyalty might be be better. more. Or they might have a particular system they don't want to switch out of, or they may have a relationship or whatever. The headache of switching. Right. And so the thing that's been so interesting talking to executives about this as well, about their sales teams, is that you have to get out of the all or nothing mentality, this binary of either you're selling on price or you're selling on value. No, that's not true. Mm -hmm. You can still sell on price while selling on value. The difference is you start off trying to discover what value the merchant wants, Mm -hmm. you may discover through that process and I've seen even companies that are really doing a good job at this, a full 30 to 40, even 50% of their sales are still sold on price. Sure. you are not going to get away from that. No, there's
2: always going to be somebody.
0: Right, merchants. Uh, there are many, many merchants out there who want a normal terminal and they want to save money. Right, and there is nothing you're going to pitch them that they're going to find valuable. They're old-fashioned. Sure. They don't want a gateway. They don't want mobile p- swipers. Like for some people, they just the thing that they value is savings and, and price uh, and simplicity and simplicity. Right. Right. And again, that is a form of value. It's just that it's one of many. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. here's the key thing. I wrote down these these four skills. Right. So There's, first of all, two skills that are required to sell on price. That is, present information. You have to know how to pitch that you can save the money. Sure. Right? Right. And then you get value. So you make a sale, and so you get value. So the idea is somebody who can sell on price is somebody who can make a compelling presentation and -hmm. then somebody who can close the sale. Right. In order to be a true value salesperson, you have to flip those two skills around uh-huh. You have to get information right so you can pitch value. Sure, sure. So that's the key takeaway. And that's something from that you've this. brought up in the past
2: too. Right. You know, I mean the whole idea of getting to know yes. the merchant so that you can Right.
0: Write. And it's like, you know, the the skill set here, and we're gonna talk a lot about this next week as far as the questions that you ask. Mm-hmm. But the key skill here is that now the the reason this is and there's it's funny, everybody's like, we'll just sell on value. No no. no. Selling on value is really difficult. It's complicated. It's mm-hmm. much harder. The reason is because if I'm starting out just getting information, I have no idea what I'm going to pitch. Sure,
2: because you can't. You,
0: I don't you know can't, what the merchant wants. Exactly. Not until you have the information. Right. So it is very different. And so you have to start your presentation off with thoughtful, probing questions mm-hmm. to find out what matters to this merchant. Right, right, right. Sure. Then once you have that, the other skill that's equally difficult is then right on the spot – you now have to come up with a value presentation based off of this information. And, it,
2: and so you have to really be thinking, you have to be on your toes. Yeah. Because you have to really not,
0: he may not tell you, you know, I want X. Exactly. He's going to say, I have this, I have X problem. Right. What is Y solution? Yes. Right, and you've got to come up with that. Now, I will tell you one other, just one final tip today, and then we'll we'll move on. And next week, we're going to get into like what types of questions do you ask to discover these needs. Mm -hmm. But the last tip I'll give you is use silence and a pause to your advantage. When you're selling on value, Uh sometimes, most times, it's actually to your benefit. Now to break the sales cycle up a little bit. You got the information you needed. Now you're going to say something like, "You know what, Mr. Jones." Do me a favor. Hold on for one minute. There is something I am thinking of that might be a great solution for you, but I need about one minute to figure out what that is. I need to ask something real quick. Can you hold on? Now, put them on hold if you are still over the phone. Give yourself a minute. Mm -hmm. Think about it. What could I offer them, right? Then you get back on the phone. Maybe if you're in person, you say, you know what? Um, There's something I have that's really valuable. I want to check on this. Would you mind if I come back later today and brought you some information about something? Or, Mm -hmm. um, you know what? Give me one second. I need to run out to my car. I've got some marketing materials in there that I think would actually benefit you. Like, sometimes you've got to give yourself that break in the action if you need it in order to come up with that solution. Otherwise, the alternative is you're going to have to either really prepare extensively and know every possible variation here. and that's Almost impossible, don't it I is. Think? Yeah, the other option is this is where we've talked many times about this, Patty. Is the other option is target very specific micro segments of the right. market, right? And then you're already you come know what in. the value is exactly, right? right? So now you ask them questions, and, and sure, there's going to be maybe three or four different types of value that you could provide, sure, but you can prepare for three or four, right? You can't prepare for a hundred. So, like, you know, I would think. The, an example we've
2: used and you've used in the past: go to a pizza parlor, right? Right. And You're like I'm only targeting pizza shops for the next three months. Right, and then, so you you know everything. Right. You got your you got your POS system for pizza
0: shops. You know right. what it does. You can demo it. You know what
2: their pain points are because right. they're pretty much the same. Right. Exactly. So so you don't so the thinking process in that case I would think, mm-hmm. um, pardon the pun, um, would <laughs> be, um, you know. You're right. I just need to make a quick phone call. I'll be right back. Exactly.
0: Right? Yeah, of course. And, and in some cases, you can even just come right into it because you already know you this. You already know it. This and You're like, hey, you know what? Actually, I think I might have a good solution. So we'll stop it there mm-hmm. because then the next thing is you've got to confirm that this need has value to them. Right. Solving this need has value, I should say. Right. And so we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Sounds like a plan. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.